Hi, everybody. Welcome back to MedTech Talk, the only podcast affiliated with the MedTech Conference. Go to our MedTech Conference website, bing, medtechconference.com. Super easy to remember to check out our ever-growing agenda. We'll have it finalized, actually, in just a week or so. It's uh, turning out to be a really great event. Today, though, we're going to talk to Dr. Garen Kong, who is the Managing Director of HealthQuest Capital. HealthQuest just this month secured or announced the securing of $225 million for their second fund, which is fantastic news, because HealthQuest invests in medtech. They have a great, uh, unique definition of medtech, the kind of opportunities they're looking for in medtech, but it is medtech. And uh, we're going to talk to Garing today about their view of the medtech sector, a little bit about digital health as well, but just overall how medtech can improve things, improve healthcare, make things, make procedures uh, easier to do, to take less time and to cost less money and to help the patient even more. There's so much opportunity in medtech. Garang Kong and HealthQuest see that, and, uh, and they're going to be putting this money to work in ventures that are really uh, coming up with innovative new devices. We also talked a bit about HealthQuest's uh, approach to investing. They have a unique way of looking at new deals, of assessing investment opportunities, and even sitting on board. So please give a listen to this uh, very great interview with a very nice man, Dr. Garang Kong of HealthQuest Capital. Garhan Kong, welcome to the podcast. Uh, thanks, Tom. Appreciate you having me. Very happy you, you took some time. Congratulations on your uh, fundraising, by the way. Uh, you you hit your two hundred twenty five million uh, hard cap, which is fantastic. Yeah, no, we are uh, uh, grateful and fortunate. We had uh, very strong uh, investor support, uh, and I think a lot of people believed in our strategy at HealthQuest and our team. And I'm sure we'll talk more about it, but uh, it was. Uh, it was actually a pretty quick fundraise, and uh, we're pleased to see the sort of excess demand. We're happy to hear that, and and we'll uh, we'll we'll get into the strategy in a second. One one uh, specific question about the fund, and you probably won't answer it, but <laughs> the uh, <laughs> the investors in your web in your press release say the websites include endowments, family offices, foundations, funds of funds, pension funds, all the normal stuff, and then global healthcare organizations. I don't know if you can name who they are, but. What what type of global healthcare organization are invested in your in your fund? Yeah, I mean, so we're not you know explicitly allowed to name our uh, LPs, but I can sort of characterize them to you. I would say we have uh, multinational uh, device manufacturer, uh, diagnostic uh, company. I'd say healthcare logistic uh, companies, uh, and then of course we actually have some uh, healthcare systems as well as investors, and so. In addition to the uh, financial investors, which, of course, are, you know, to be fair, the majority of our investors, Mm -hmm. we do have a meaningful uh, allocation to what we call strategic investors who uh, both want the financial return, but also want the uh, relationship so that uh, they can have a purview on what's going on with respect to innovation uh, and growth in areas of healthcare that they might not otherwise see. And to be fair, we want uh, access to them uh, because they're all, by definition, large, multinational, multi-billion-dollar uh, healthcare entities who uh, have a broad reach and perspective. Uh, so we've actually found that, if you will, uh, allocation in our LP base to be quite helpful as we uh, identify portfolio companies. Uh, no, that's a theme that we've uh, 
that we've followed here, we, we've, we've had an event sort of centered around payers and providers that are investing in companies and or healthcare funds. So certainly is a, a great demographic to have uh, as part of your partnership and to provide insights on, uh, on where all these products you're helping to create fit. Uh, just looking at your bio, it's, uh, impressive doesn't quite cover it. You get your two undergraduate degrees uh, in engineering uh, or chemical engineering and biological sciences rather from Stanford while on an athletic scholarship. I assume this was for volleyball because it says you're a nationally ranked volleyball player. Yeah, no, I did. I, uh, I studied, but I also had a good time uh, playing volleyball at Stanford. Um, so I, uh, I did uh, have the full student athlete experience. That's fantastic. What, is, what I'm curious, what is a, how does volleyball carry over after college? You know, you, if you play basketball in college, you can certainly pay, pick up game with your, your friends or baseball. You'll find baseball leagues. Is, there, is volleyball still part of your life? You know, it's funny you say that. Uh, I do actually still play volleyball. There are, uh, there's no professional leagues uh, in the United States, but there are, um, I would say, pretty competitive uh, amateur leagues. Uh, and uh, so many of us who play college volleyball, uh, you know, in fact, many who went to play overseas professionally uh, but are now back in the States uh, still play in some of these leagues that are relatively competitive. And so I still... Uh, play in a uh, somewhat competitive league, albeit uh, it is uh, harder to uh, keep up with the 25-year-olds these days. Uh, <laughs> but it's still still a good time, uh, and it's a, you know volleyball is one of the ultimate team sports. Uh, unlike basketball, which I'm also a big fan of, you know one player can really take over the game in basketball. Uh, in volleyball, it really does require a team because. Uh, you know, three people have to touch the ball every time it comes over, uh, and three, most of the time, three different people. So, uh, so it really is a very team-oriented sport. That's interesting. So, so I was, I was also curious. What are the life lessons that you carry over from from volleyball? Is it is it just that that you're only as strong as the the person standing next to you or next to them? Yeah, no, I think that's actually right. And uh, the the team aspect of you know volleyball is is huge because of the fact that really, you actually need to have six good players on the court. In volleyball, it's very obvious if even one of those six players is not at the same level. Uh, and I think that that's uh, something that we do take forward. Certainly, I have both investing with respect to the portfolio companies that we uh, work with, but also even our own team. Uh, and, you know, if you look at our team, for example, it's actually quite diverse. Uh, you know, we have people who, by definition, have different kinds of experiences uh, in operating roles, in uh, product development, marketing, uh, human resources, and, of course, investing in technical. And we actually did that by design uh, because we actually work together as a team uh, when we uh, identify opportunities. Uh, and maybe, you know, one distinction there is um, some very successful firms have a different model. Uh, where they have a single partner, maybe with some associates who find a deal, do the due diligence, you know, bring it to the partners meeting, maybe get asked questions and they run the gauntlet and, you know, they either get the deal through or not through the partnership uh, and it ends up in the portfolio. You know, for us, if a deal comes in and is interesting, we actually put the full team on it uh, and it's a collective team decision to either pursue or not to pursue. Hmm. Uh, and then ultimately, when we do invest, uh, you know, we have two members of our team, you know, help manage and monitor. Uh, but there's not sort of a single uh, loan champion that runs the gauntlet to get it into the portfolio. 
we take this team approach uh, because you know our view is there's 20 really important questions that we need to get answered about a potential investment opportunity. And no matter how smart or hardworking or experienced you are, maybe you get 16 or 17 of those. Uh, but if you have you know, four or five or six different experience perspectives, you have a chance at getting you know, 19 or 20 of those. Uh, and so we do actually take a quite team approach to investing, which is a little different than, than some other groups. Yeah, no, it certainly is. If, if I'm uh, an entrepreneur talking to your firm, you're looking at my company, do I call, do I have a contact person or am I getting a different person on the phone every time I, ca I call over or every time I have a meeting? Yeah, no, good question. So certainly, you know, for any given opportunity, we tend to have a contact person, but we also are very clear with uh, the companies that we're getting to know and, you know, for example, going through a diligence process that there will be a contact person, but they shouldn't be surprised if they hear from more than one person uh, as they go through the process, because one of us may be working on market and another may be working on intellectual property or technology. And we do this for a couple of reasons. One, to make a better investment decision. Two, to have the team more broadly exposed to the company and vice versa. And the reason why we think that's important is not just during the investment, but in fact, after the investment, <clears throat> a lot of times the model is, well, somebody's on the board and they'll just watch the company. And, you know, we do have somebody on the board. We usually actually have a second who's an observer. But what we want the company to feel free to do and vice versa is to call any of us and say, you know, during diligence, so-and-so was really helpful, who is not on my board or the board observer, but, you know, he or she uh, asked about this or knew a lot about manufacturing of medical devices, whatever it could be, you know, they should feel free to call that partner who is not going to the board meetings and the flip is true, you know, as our partners are walking around interacting with other companies or corporate partners, we want them to be thinking of our entire portfolio, not just the companies they happen to be on the board of. And so we try to broaden out that exposure for both better investment decisions, but to create more sort of catalytic moments. Uh, and so, you know, even though there's a point person for any given uh, diligence or interaction, uh, a company will, in fact, interact with more likely three or four members of the team directly uh, on a somewhat regular basis during that process. That's really clever. I'm listening to this. I'm a, a Boston guy, a Patriots fan. I, I can't help but think if Bill Belichick had a venture firm, it would be run like this. You'd have like six solid people working on everything together as opposed to many firms will bring in high-profile uh, individuals from from different areas and they and they work as a partnership but but they also work very independently of each other as well so uh it certainly is a a clever and different way of going about things yeah no and we think it it should end up resulting in uh better companies uh and then ultimately better outcomes for our investors hi everyone this is tom i'm going to take a quick break from our conversation to ask you to go to medtechconference.com to check out our agenda for the june 1st meeting in Minneapolis. This is our 15th MedTech Conference, and uh, we're introducing a lot of new, uh, new topics for discussion, including a panel that's focusing on uh, the younger uh, executives and investors in MedTech to find out what the next generation of MedTech sees as the greatest opportunities and challenges facing the sector. Now back to this talk with Garen Kong. Well, let's actually pull back a little more about your history. 
you had a connection with Sofanova. Do you still have a connection with Sofanova? What is the history and what is the relationship like with uh, Sofanova in San Francisco, not in Paris? Yeah, sure. So it sounds like you know there's already there's two Sofanovas, one in I do. Paris and one in San Francisco. <laughs> uh, and, you know, they share the same name, but they're actually separate firms. Um, so we're similar to that uh, in the sense that uh, you know, I was a uh, general partner at Sofanova for uh, several years and then started HealthQuest, uh, in some sense, sort of spun out of Sofanova and started HealthQuest. So the way I try to explain it is we're close cousins uh, in the sense that, um, you know, legally, uh, you know, we have different LPs, we have different investment team members. For the most part, our decisions are completely separate, uh, but we're good friends. Uh, and you know, Sofanova San Francisco focuses principally on drug development and biopharmaceuticals, which we don't do at HealthQuest. And so <clears throat> we're happy to send those opportunities to them. And, you know, to be fair, uh, Sofanova San Francisco doesn't do medical device investing, for example. Uh, and so they would be happy to set, send those opportunities to us. So, you know, I would say we have this common heritage in the sense that I uh, was a GP there, similar to how Sofanova San Francisco used to be attached to Sofanova Paris. Mm -hmm. um, but now we're all quite separate and I would say just, you know, very good cousins. So uh, I don't want to be, um, uh, um, I don't want to diminish medtech with this question, but why medtech? I mean, you're in biotech, obviously they've had unbelievably last three or four years and, and those good times come and they go. But what, what opportunities do you see in medtech and, and how do you even define medtech is it it's it's changing over years it's becoming we're seeing medtronic sort of move into the solutions uh right. aspect and medtech itself is becoming really complex how do you view it and how do you characterize it to yeah. your lps so, to be fair we don't define our fund as a device fund which i think a lot of people traditionally in the past would have called you know medtech devices the way we think about uh investing in healthcare is the following you know we spend about call it Three and a half trillion dollars a year in healthcare in the United States, um, and nine percent of that is on drugs. And so, you know, it's still a big number, almost three hundred fifty billion dollars a year. But the truth is, the other three plus trillion dollars a year in healthcare are not drugs. And so, there's a large area within healthcare spending that is much, you know, related to traditional devices and diagnostics and technology and technology-enabled services and hospital products. Uh, and so when we think about investing, we think about really two things, value optimization in healthcare and efficiency of delivery in healthcare. So value optimization is just a function of better patient outcomes and better health economics. So it's sort of cost benefit, right? So we want to invest in innovation that either drives a better patient outcome, maybe actually even costs a little bit more, that's still good value, or we want to invest in something that is new but gives you the same outcome as before, but it takes five steps out of the healthcare system and saves you a lot of money, that's also good value. And then in a perfect world, of course, we'd invest in something that both has a better outcome and saves the healthcare system dollars. But when we look at everything through that lens, uh, we're really agnostic in some sense to what the end effector, if you will, of causing value in the healthcare system is or increased efficiency in the healthcare system. So. You know, when we think about medical technologies, we actually define it quite broadly. Uh, of course, it includes the traditional medical devices uh, of orthopedics or cardiovascular medicine or, or pick whatever you want. Uh, but as you touched on, Tom, 
there's quite a bit of technology that is pervading uh, really our entire society, and healthcare is uh, no different. And so uh, now connectivity software data is really important to enable healthcare. Uh, so the you know the immediate adjacent step from devices is pretty easy. So it's sort of devices that are connected or wireless, or they talk to each other, or they're a sensor for something that gives you an algorithm and and changes clinical care. Uh, but really, medical technology is even broader than that. You mentioned uh, sort of the full solution set, uh, and so a lot of times, you know, this is long uh, continuum between I would call it traditional healthcare service that has no technology, sort of hands-on bodies, uh, all the way through what we call hardcore, just you know, some device. But in between all of that, there's technology-enabled services that are big S and small T, and over time, it's actually big T and a little bit of S. Uh, and then, you know, you get into just pure technology, and then you get into pure devices. And so from our point of view, we actually want to invest across the entire continuum uh, there, completely indifferent, actually, to the end modality, as long as it drives that value equation I alluded to earlier. Uh, and so if you look at our portfolio, you'll see companies that are traditional devices, but you'll see also some healthcare IT kind of companies. And to be fair, you also see some diagnostic companies that uh, provide information through a specific test that changed clinical therapy. So, uh, you know, I think you're right. The definition of medical technologies is much broader now and maybe not as um, linked solely to what we would call devices in the past. Yeah, it's, it's, we, we kind of have evolved back into healthcare being almost a, a generalist fund, whereas it seems like it used to be generalist VCs invested in everything, then they, then they invested in healthcare, and then they went even further and they split between biotech and medtech. Now it's kind of, with the exception of maybe biotech, which remains separately, medtech and services and IT, they're really, really kind of almost falling into the same pool, it seems. Yeah, and you know, one of the things that I would say is that if you think about what drives that category, it's principally understanding patients, physicians, and payers, uh, because the value for those kinds of investments are about adoption amongst one, two, or all three of those stakeholders. Um, whereas on the biotech side, most of the value is actually driven by clinical trials and understanding what the FDA is going to say. Uh, and, um, and so that is a slightly different uh, evaluation in mm -hmm. some sense, because you can drive a lot of value on the drug side by showing up with really positive phase two or phase three data, of which really, you know, patients, physicians, and payers are not yet in play. Uh, but when it comes to traditional medical devices or healthcare IT or diagnostics, to really drive the value, you need to show adoption. And that's really all in the same world. So we didn't talk about this, but, you know, I happen to be a physician by training. Everybody in my family is a physician. I'm actually technically the only not real doctor in the sense <laughs> that I don't practice. Um, and, you know, when I talk to my wife, who's a cardiologist, or my sister's a radiologist, or my dad, who's also a cardiologist, for example, um, you know, they don't distinguish between uh, the sectors that we think about, right? They think, I have a problem. My, mm -hmm. my patient's got congestive heart failure. What are all the tools that I need to manage that patient? Maybe it's a medical device. Maybe it's I need some diagnostic sensor to understand how their heart failure is progressing. Maybe it's uh, tech-enabled software because 
I need to actually put sensors in their house to understand if they're gaining weight in fluid so I can manage them more aggressively. And so, you know, they're not thinking, well, I need a healthcare IT answer and a diagnostic answer and a device answer. They're just thinking, I need to manage this patient. What are all the things I can do? Uh, and so, you know, in the real world, quote unquote, uh, the doctors don't segment it that way. They just use whatever they need to use. And I mean, to be fair, that's actually true for drugs too, right? They just think, whatever I have to manage, I'll use it. And so uh, I think you're right in the sense that, you know, where it sort of meets the real world clinical uh, utility piece, those traditional sectors of devices, diagnostics, uh, technology, and healthcare are, are really coming together. Uh, and, you know, the expertise required, if you will, in some sense, to evaluate all those is more about you know, adoption mm-hmm. uh, from patients, physicians, and payers, as opposed to, you know, am I the smartest engineer to understand this widget uh, or the smartest molecular biologist to understand this, you know, personalized medicine diagnostic test? That's a great point. And, and, and I think it's a positive development. But going into your, your, your strategy, and, I, and I've read that you, you like to avoid things that have a, a, a binary answer, and that obviously would be an FDA approval or a clinical trial, that sort of thing. But isn't there always a, a a point of yes or no with evaluating any kind of company. I mean, you talk about wanting to invest in a, in a device or device slash services or service services slash device that removes four or five steps from the process. How do you accurately measure that those steps are going to re- be removed? There, there. You you need to at one point almost believe that this is going to work and this is going to do. This is going to have yeah. This is going to have the adoption that we think it will because it's going to save the steps that we think it will. Yeah. No. So. Uh... I want to distinguish um, binary risk from taking risk. I mean, we definitely take risk. <clears throat> In fact, the risk we take is exactly the one you alluded to, which is principally adoption risk. Um, you know, will it actually get used by those three stakeholders I mentioned? Uh, but when we say binary risk, what we don't want to do is wake up one day and the FDA sent us a letter and the company's over. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the risk we're trying to take is, well, you know, we try to go in the hospital, uh, we have something that, you know, makes workflow more efficient or by using our device, they don't have to do three other things that they used to have to do. And you're right, there's risk in, you know, will the physicians or the nurses adopt it? Uh, but, you know, we have some maneuverability there in the sense of how we position it, how we go in and sell it, you know, what, what's the right channel or specific clinical situation uh, for it to use. So there's plenty of judgment in what we do. Uh, and, you know, to be fair, uh, you know, we like to be right more often than not, but, you know, we're certainly not right all the time. And when we're wrong, uh, I'll tell you that we're not usually wrong on the was it valuable access. We're usually wrong on the how long does it take to get adopted. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, because if it takes 10 years for it to become standard of care, that's great, but that's not a great investment. <laughs> so, um, uh that is something that we spend a lot of time uh, thinking about and hoping that, you know, through our discussions with physicians and payers and patients and understanding who the decision makers are and how fast they can actually make those decisions in, for example, large medical systems, um, that really dictates, uh, you know, an additional layer to our sort of uh, investment thesis. Mm-hmm. And just final question. Um, and I think you alluded to this earlier, looking at your portfolio and, and looking at the uh the, the likelihood of success and the potential returns it seems as if you are really banking on 
a really high batting average. You're, you're you're not subscribing to the old, you know, two or three successful deals can kind of carry a fund. You you need to be right more often than not in evaluating these kind of companies. Is that true? Yeah, no, I think that's right. Because we're not taking the binary risk, if you will, we're taking risk, you know, early adoption risk. Um, but uh, we we do, yeah, our portfolio is not built to have, you know, one fifty x and then nine zeros behind it. Uh, you know, our portfolio, we actually want to make investments where we think, you know, every single investment has the opportunity to generate five to ten times invested capital. Now. You know, to be fair, uh, we'd love to have companies generate 30 or 40 X, but you know, the, the truth is, uh, you know, we think that we can uh, invest in some really attractive companies that generate sort of realistic but attractive multiples. But you're right, Tom. I mean, because we're not likely to show up with the, you know, 50 X, uh, we also can't show up with a bunch of zeros. And, uh, and so, you know, to be totally fair, the bad deals for us are more like, 1.5 times your money, and it took you a long time to do it. So the IRR is very bad. But you know, we don't we don't usually lose a bunch of money. That's that's probably a fair statement. Mm-hmm. Terrific. Well, it's exciting to have uh, another player out there with uh, money to invest. And uh, thank you for taking a few minutes today to tell us about HealthQuest. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks very much, Tom. Bye. Thanks, Garen Kong, for joining us on MedTech Talk. Great to uh, hear. HealthQuest story. It's one I've been following from afar and uh, very happy to finally have the inside story. And now all of our listeners have it as well. Thank you, our listeners, for joining us on MedTech Talk. Don't forget to go to medtechconference.com to find out the latest about our June 1st meeting and, of course, to register. Go to medtechconference.com, sign up, and we will see you in Minneapolis. Minneapolis.